The gospel reading for the morning is from the 24th chapter of Matthew. Coming off a holiday weekend and with decorations for Christmas springing up all over the place, I always feel like on the first Sunday of Advent to kind of slap a warning label on these texts like not so fast. Uh, Like being interrupted by a drum or a chicken or an air horn, scripture gives us this moment of interruption, disruption, into our carefully laid holiday plans to focus us on what is ultimately important. And that is true in this text from Matthew today. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The word of the Lord. During World War II, the U.S. military sought to make their planes as bulletproof as possible. As they returned from missions, they recorded where those planes had taken the most damage. Over and over again, they saw bullet holes uh, to accumulate it along the wings, around the tail gunner, and down the center of the body. Wings, body, tail gunner. Naturally, the commanders wanted to put thicker protection where they could (coughs) clearly see the most damage. But a man named Abraham Wald, a statistician who had been assigned to review the data, said that was exactly the wrong decision. The mistake, which Wald saw instantly, was that the holes showed where the planes were the strongest. They could take hits there and still make it back to base. It was the planes that didn't return that needed the extra protection, and they needed it precisely where these planes did not. The holes in the surviving planes actually revealed the location of the need for the least amount of additional armor. Look at where the surviving planes are unharmed, he said, and that's where the bombers are most vulnerable. That's where the planes that didn't make it back were hit. There is a large industry in our culture assisting us with time management. You can spend thousands of dollars on the perfect time management plan. And their approach is similar to these misguided uh, attempts to provide additional armor for fighter planes. If you are organized, they'll get you more organized. If you are disorganized, they'll work you toward organization and then escalate from there. It all starts with looking where the holes are in your time management and trying to plug those holes. Assuming that if you know more about time, you can do more 
and then you can be more. I'm wondering this morning if you are running out of time. Your answer may be different if you're an 86-year-old surveying your life or a 36-year-old aware of the pressing tasks and deadlines that loom tomorrow, or the 16-year-old who didn't quite get to those assignments over the holiday weekend. Time is different for us if you have tried to no avail to reconcile with a friend or family member, or if you are counting the days until you're reunited with the love of your life. In contrast to some Eastern religions that view time as an endless cycle, birth, death, rebirth, Christians every day are called to look backward, remembering God's mighty acts of salvation, and to look forward, anticipating God's new heaven and new earth. Christians live, as theologian Karl Barth said, in between the times. The season of Advent, which we enter today, invites us to consider again the character and shape of our living. Not shaped by Black Friday or Cyber Monday, not in regard to the best party, pageant, wreath, or tree, but how people like us live in between times, between what we already know about God's faithfulness and what we don't know yet about God's eternal reign. Advent says to us that time doesn't belong to us, even though we try to strap it onto our wrist and carry it around on a calendar. Time does not belong to us, and we are not called to manage our time on our own. Christmas is the numbing season, Rodney Clapp has written. There are ceaseless rounds of Christmas parties, each requiring preparation of food and gift buying, each surfeited with expectations of obligatory Christmas cheer. There is the flood of commerce requiring a careful parsing of what's the hottest gift this year. And then there are the visits to family, spiked with all the stresses attendant on such endeavors. Finally, There are the added church responsibilities, nativity pageants, Christmas Eve services. It all feels, Clapp says, like a largely numbing endeavor. One of the leading causes of our numbing and why we so try so carefully to manage our time is to go toward things we like and stay away from things that cause us pain. We are determined as a people to avoid pain at almost all costs. Several years ago, the painkiller Metaprin ran a very clever TV ad. First, you saw a guy with a a handheld jackhammer jackhammering at the pavement. It was chaos all around, such noise, it filled the air. And then the guy looks up and he has a splitting headache. Cut to a sharp businesswoman, rushed from meeting to meeting, phone call to phone call, not a second to spare all day, and all of a sudden she has a monumental headache. And then came the soothing voiceover, Metaprin, when you don't have time for the pain. If we are busy enough, if we manage our time just right, we think, we won't have time to notice the pain we carry or the pain that surrounds us. Wake up.
Do you know what time it is? That's the underlying theme in both Matthew and Romans today. And in waking up, we are invited to live like those who know what time it is. Our time has been commandeered. It's been overtaken by the living, seeking God. We are never redeemed away from time. Our emphasis is never on time management but on a God who moves into time, adopts our time, redeems us from the ravages of time, and generates a fullness of time we could never manufacture on our own. We are encouraged not to escape time, as some Eastern religions do, but rather to live in time as those who know what time it really is. Have you ever noticed the peculiar tendency in the gospel stories to locate themselves in a particular geography, constantly mentioning places and names of things that we've never heard of before and will probably never hear of again? The incarnation, God's coming among us in Jesus Christ, is thus demonstrated in Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem and the like. It's a God who locates. But note how the Gospels also take pain to state that Jesus not only occurred in space, but in time. How often do the Gospel writers say things like, the next day, or it was the third hour, immediately, on the Sabbath, it was night. This is the Bible's way of saying in Jesus Christ, God dwells in our time. But our relationship with time is ambiguous at best. There's a website, The Things You Would Have Said. It's less about confessions and unburdening yourself and more about those nagging feelings of what you should have said to someone or in some situation. Some of these things can really eat at people, Jackie Hooper, who started the site, says, and they get upset that they didn't say it at the time. If you didn't have a chance to say something and they're still alive, or you've lost contact, this gives you an opportunity to express those things. Hooper posts one letter a day. She's got quite a backlog. About 70% of the letters are addressed to people who've died. And just under half are written to fathers. An example is a letter posted by Emily, age 33. Dear Brandon, I'm so sorry for not answering the phone a few days before you died. I wasn't doing anything. The kids were gone, the house was quiet. I just ignored your phone call for no good reason. If only I had known, I would have gotten to talk to you one last time. I would have told you what a wonderful, awesome, unselfish, giving, caring person I thought you were. I didn't get a chance to tell you that, and I'll never forgive myself. If time means regret, then we're forever trapped. If time means endless repetition of unfinished words, then we don't have a way forward. God is the redeemer of our time. More than that, God shapes our time into purpose. That's hard to believe. That's very hard to believe some days. In a largely forgotten movie, Twice in a Lifetime, the character played by Gene Hackman leaves his wife, played by Ellen Burstyn, for another woman, played by Anne Margaret. Uh, He leaves not out of anger or bitterness, but out of regret. 
In trying to explain the irrational actions of this responsible, rational man, he finally tells his oldest daughter, it had been years since I woke up on any given day not knowing exactly what that day held for me. It's been so long since I have been surprised by my life or what happened in it today. Now, you and I may recognize that as some midlife crisis, but in the light of Advent, Hackman is speaking directly about a life without shaping, without an urgency of God's time. Even the disciples aren't immune to this, falling into this trap of ambiguous relationship with time. In Jesus' resurrection, everything in the world was turned upside down, and time ceased to be what humans make it, and time became what God makes of it. And yet, what was the first act of the disciples in the Gospel of John after they witnessed the drama of the resurrection? They went back home. They attempted to get back to normal. Whenever the culture's official, predictable, accustomed time is disrupted, immediately we spring into action and try to get back to normal, as if we're in control of all that. We so want things to be predictable and fixed and tied down. But in Advent, we focus on, prepare for, and explore the significance of a God who not only loves us, but who showed up among us, disrupting us, calling us, and expecting us to live a life shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why when something happens, and something always happens, we need to pay attention. That's why when our plans and our carefully ordered lives are disrupted, and our plans and ordered lives are always disrupted. We need to be ready. That's what this scripture is saying today. You know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. When Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, we realized something was afoot that was considerably beyond our conception of what could possibly be and not be. So perhaps... Advent is a yearly reminder that at any moment, your time becomes God's time. The time that you thought was your own, to live as you please, make choices as you want, is in reality God's. But it's not enough to simply welcome disruption from God. It's not enough to understand that we can be free of past regrets in God. It's not enough to work on being fully present today with God. Paul's exhortation takes our view of time but moves it into action. Let us lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. God's view of time includes expectations on us. The biggest problem with all our time management programs is that they want you to know everything so you can organize everything. God does not want you or me to know everything, thank God. But God does expect us to do something. We are called to be new people. 
What we do matters. How we think matters. What we speak matters. How we reach out matters. What we withhold or what we give matters. How we act toward others matters. How we spend our time, our energy, our focus, our money matters. God has a way of taking time, taking it from you and taking it for you. In your life, It's not just the same darn thing over and over again because all that happens in time is not left up to us. In God's time, our past is redeemed and our regrets are healed. Our present is called to attention, to watch intently for the presence of God. And our future, our future is infused with purpose, God's purpose, God's hope, God's life as the most important thing in our time. Frederick Buechner once wrote of Advent, the Salvation Army Santa Claus clangs his bell. The sidewalks are so crowded you can hardly move. Exhaust fumes are the chief fragrance in the air and everybody is as bundled up against any sense of what all the fuss is really about as they are bundled up against the wind chill factor. But if you concentrate just for an instant, far off in the deeps of you, somewhere you can feel the beating of your heart. And for all its madness and lostness, not to mention your own, you can hear the world itself holding its breath. God does not ask us to know everything But God does ask us to do something. But God does not ask us to do everything. In Advent, our time becomes God's time. And we confront this hard truth that assaults our 21st sensibility. The time is not ours to manage on our own. So my modest proposal for the next four weeks is that over these four weeks, between now and Christmas, each time you check your watch or consult your calendar, consider for yourself that you do not know everything and time is not entirely yours to manage. But you are asked to do something. So as you look at your watch or consult your calendar, think you are asked to do something, something for God's world. And most of all, Consider that you are not expected to do everything. And so we get to give ourselves over to trust in God. And as you look at your watch or consult your calendar, maybe even once a day, hold your breath. For the one who carries everything and redeems everything is drawing near. If we have and take the time to notice, and to follow. Amen.